Welcome to the Stand By My Servants podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree, professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, explores the lives and teachings of the members of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. As we examine the lives and teachings of these leaders, our lives can be edified, enriched, and spiritually strengthened. Now here is your host, Dr. Mark D. Ogletree. Welcome to another episode of Stand By My Servants, episode six. We're going to talk today about the life of President Dallin H. Oaks and what an incredible life it's been. Boy, has Elder Oaks been through many challenges in life that have molded him and shaped him. And I think a great way to start would be with his birth. Why not start at the very beginning? I'll just read to you from his biography that there was no hospital in Provo in 1932, And the Crane Maternity Home was having epidemic difficulties, explains Stella Harris Oaks, of the circumstances when her pregnancy reached full term on August the 12th of that year. So the decision was made that our first baby would be born at home, in the same room which I had been born 26 years previously. Stella's water had broke two weeks earlier, meaning this would be a dry birth, increasing the risk of complications. And I'll just insert here that, wow, Times have changed, right? Today, if a, if a woman's water breaks, they're going to have that baby in the next 24 hours. But anyway, they did things a little bit differently in 1932. We understand that. Yet with the characteristic cheerfulness, she faced the long, painful labor bravely. After all, she was attended by four medical professionals. Her husband of three years, Dr. Lloyd Oaks, his older brother, Weston Oaks, with whom he practiced medicine, their sister, Nettie Oaks, a newly graduated nurse, and Dr. Lloyd Colomore, a general practitioner who had come to Provo just for the purpose to reduce maternal and infant mortality. It was a federal program. And then Sister Oaks wrote, They surrounded me all in white and eager to make things as easy for me as possible, Stella recounted. In their eagerness, however, they used a new and very effective anesthetic. So effective, in fact, that it penetrated and numbed the newly birthing baby as well, so that he did not breathe upon delivery. Trying to resuscitate the infant boy, and by the way, this is how Dalinic Jokes comes into the world, the three doctors each took a turn exercising the tiny body of the baby, spatting him, bending him double, and trying every technique known to be effective, Stella remembered. But still, he did not respond. Finally, Nettie standing tensely nearby was suddenly and distinctly prompted to pick up a can of chloroform and spray it on the baby's upper torso the sudden freezing cold sensation caused him to gasp for that first precious breath and stella saw nettie's prompting as a moment of inspiration that saved the child's life now if you're wondering about the name because how many dallins do we know in the world It feels like there are so many. I think in every place I've ever lived, there's a Dallin in the ward. And I think that's because of Dallin H. Oaks. But Stella had decided the boy's name 18 days earlier as she sat on the ditch bank in a public park in nearby Springville, Utah. Thousands had gathered for the unveiling of a statue dedicated to pioneer mothers by the Boston sculptor Cyrus Dallin, hailing originally from Springville. Uh, Dallin had gone on to fame as the creator of the iconic public sculptures, including the Angel Moroni atop the Salt Lake Temple and the Brigham Young Monument at South Temple and Main Street in Salt Lake and the Paul Revere statue near the Old North Church in Boston. Anyway, and as Stella watched Cyrus Dallin unveil his memorial to the pioneer women of Springville, taught by a bronze bust modeled after his own mother, She decided then and there to name her first child after the artist, providing that it was a son. Now, this is another great opportunity to note a trend, and it's a really cool trend in my mind. It's amazing how many of our church leaders today are tied to what I call the founding fathers of the church. And so, in the case of Stella Oaks, Harris was Stella's maiden name. She was a great-granddaughter to Emer Harris. And who was Emer Harris? The brother of Martin Harris. So, President Dallin H. Oaks is tied very directly right into one of the three witnesses of the church. 
Elder Holland is connected very directly to President George Q. Cannon. Elder Cook, Elder Quentin L. Cook, is tied very directly in the same type of way to Elder Heber C. Kimball. And we know that Elder Gary Stevenson, because of a conference talk that he gave a while back, is, is tied into Mary Elizabeth Rollins Leitner. And so it goes through. And there are others like that that we'll talk about during the course of, of this podcast. Not this episode necessarily, but, but this podcast. I think it's really cool that the Lord's hand is in those callings. About 10 years ago or so, Elder Oaks at the time... I say at the time because he's President Oaks now, but at the time, Elder Oaks wrote a book called Life's Lessons Learned, a book that I recommend to all of us, where Elder Oaks just shares the wisdom uh, and some major life experiences that he's been through and the lessons that come from those experiences. And I'm going to frame our message today, our podcast episode today, based on the idea of life's lessons. And so we'll start with this one. And, and, and by the way, this is one of the first lessons that President Oak shares in his book that I think is so significant. So let me just share it with you. Here we go. The year was 1940, and it looked like smooth sailing ahead. No question about it. Lloyd Oaks had a thriving medical practice in Twin Falls, Idaho. So after some postdoctoral work in Vienna, Austria, in Cairo, Egypt, that the family had settled down for a life of security and prosperity. And you can only imagine a doctor, someone who's been through all those years of school, now it's time to finally settle in, have a routine schedule with your family, make some good money, hopefully, and provide for your family in a way that's, uh, that could be wonderful. But in the fall of 1939, Lloyd was diagnosed with tuberculosis, and he was hospitalized in Denver. Now, even though the family lived in Twin Falls, Denver would have been the site of the major medical center for the Intermountain West. And although Lloyd received optimal care, the doctors could not stop the disease from advancing. So Lloyd passes away on June the 10th, 1940, just two months before Dallin would be eight years old and baptized. As you can imagine, Lloyd's death rocked the world of many people. Stella, for one, Dallin's mother, of course, Dallin, and what other, other, the other children in the family, neighbors, friends, extended family. In his first month in the hospital, Stella wrote to Lloyd, you shall be healed if your faith is great enough. Recovery is according to our faith, and the blessing is ours for the faith and the asking. You can see her faith by sharing that and her hope and her optimism. One week later, Stella wrote that if your faith is great enough, there is no blessing God can withhold from us. You see that faith again. Now, here's the interesting part. Many prominent priesthood holders, including the president of the Western States Mission in Denver and a visiting member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, visited Lloyd in the hospital and gave priesthood blessings that contained promises of healing. In fact, each of these leaders rebuked the disease and commanded, commanded Elder Oak said, that my father be made whole. Two years earlier, as Lloyd and Stella were leaving for additional medical studies in Europe, another member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles blessed Lloyd with these words, that the time will come when you will heal thousands. Elder Oak stated, that promise had also sustained my parents during my father's illness and then added to my mother's dismay upon his death. Or in other words, you can sense now the confusion that many would have felt in light of these blessings that were promising full healing, and then yet Lloyd's going to die. Elder Oaks wrote this, Ten days before my father died, the doctors advised my mother, then in Denver, that they had done everything that they could do and that the disease would soon take her husband's life. Numb with shock, she wrote their bishop in Twin Falls and said that a very great peace had come to her and that I'm ready to say thy will be done. And then Elder Oaks at the time, President Oaks commented that her acceptance and her healing had begun, but her questions remained. The answer was given at the funeral by President J.W. Richens of the Twin Falls Stake, their stake president, who said all was done medically and in faith and in prayer that could be done for him. No doubt the most earnest and sincere prayer that was ever offered was the one 
while the master was in the garden of Gethsemane and prayed most earnestly to his father, May this cup pass by me. But it closed with these remarks, Not will, not my will, but thine be done. President Richens continued, So it was with the Savior himself. His prayer was not answered because it was not the will of the Lord. And so our prayers have not been answered as we have asked for Lloyd's recovery. But we have always said, Thy will be done. Now we know that President Oaks must have thought about this quite often in his life, not just as a child, but as an adult. And once again, you can sense the confusion and the complexity here when a member of the Quorum of the Twelve gives a blessing and it doesn't come to fruition. And so years later, in two talks given at General Conference, President Oaks said, I summarized the lessons I had learned from this experience. First, faith, no matter how strong it is, cannot produce a result contrary to the will of him whose power it is. The exercise of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is always subject to the order of heaven, to the goodness and will and wisdom and the timing of the Lord. So there's lesson one. Lesson two, the second lesson. Even the servants of the Lord exercising his divine power, we'll call that the priesthood, in a circumstance where there is sufficient faith to be healed, cannot give a priesthood blessing that will cause a person to be healed if that healing is not of the Lord. Now, to be super careful here, but did some servants along the way, based on President Oaks's answer to this dilemma, did some servants along the way give blessings that were not inspired of the Lord or were not of him? Possibly. Certainly possibly, and it's, I know it's hard to say that. Could there be a timing issue here where some of that healing and other uh, other blessings promised could take place on the other side of the veil? Yes. But we know that any of us would want to bless someone to live if we had a dying family member, father, mother, child, whoever it is. We would want them to live, and we may bless them according to those feelings. And President Oaks makes it very clear, but yet if it's not the Lord's will, if it's not the Lord's will, then that miracle is not going to happen. For miracles to happen, the Lord has to endorse them. And we'll call that life lesson one. Are there lessons from this experience that can apply to our lives? And what would some of those lessons be, right? What have we learned from our own losses and some of our own, from some of our own confusing spiritual, spiritual journeys, you know, that, that occur in, the, in our own lives? It's a great thing to think about. Well, let's talk about post-trauma here for a minute. Imagine Stella Oaks now left with three small children to raise. She tried to go back to work after the death of her husband. It was too much, and soon she suffered a nervous breakdown. Now, we may call a nervous breakdown today like a panic attack or major anxiety. Eight-year-old Dallin was sent to live with his mother's parents on their farm near Payson, 12 miles south of Provo, and the next several years of President Oaks's life are going to stink, to be honest with you. It's just going to be a really rough time. Imagine he lo he's lost his dad, and now, in a sense, he's lost his mom. He's living with grandparents. He just moved out of his house. Now he's living, left Provo, and he's living, or sorry, Twin Falls, and now he's living, living in Payson. And then President Oaks wrote this, Despite the tender care of loving grandparents, my third and fourth grade years in school, when I was eight to ten years old, were terribly unhappy for me. I rode a school bus from the farm two miles south of Payson. A few grade schoolers on this high school bus were buffeted and bullied. And I remember having no identity with these fellow travelers and being tossed on that bus like a rag doll, he said. And since the bus stopped at the high school, I had to walk usually alone about a mile further to the grade school. And if I was late getting back to the bus after school and it was gone, I had to walk two more miles to get home. And then he continued this. My most vivid memory that year is passing our arithmetic papers forward to be graded publicly and of how the announced result usually put me at the bottom of the class. In fact, in a 20-problem exercise, I usually had 15 or 16 answers wrong. I knew that I was the dumbest boy in the room. And I remember on one occasion when some classmates actually threw snowballs at me and called me stupid. It really sounds like almost Charlie Brown here for a minute. But once again, just notice the the trauma. And you can imagine 
present Alan H. Oaks, ages 8, 9, and 10, and going through the trauma of losing a parent and then, in a sense, losing another parent temporarily and having so much post-traumatic stress in his life that he really did find it hard to function. Now, the story gets a lot better. His mother, Stella, after two years, had recovered and accepted a teaching position in Vernal. Some of you know where, may know where Vernal is. And the family was reunited again. And then she later moved the family to Provo, where the children could be close to BYU. Now Stella becomes a powerhouse. And this is a great lesson for all of us on how we ha- can have adversity in our life. But that adversity can be used to motivate and to excel and to overcome. And that's exactly what happened to Stella. She became the director of adult education for the Provo City Schools. She became a respected and influential woman in the community. She was actually elected to the Provo City Council. And in Vernal is where Elder Oaks also found himself. He went from the dumbest boy in the class, to quote his own words there, to becoming one of the brightest. And he attributes a lot of that success to first a teacher named Pearl Schaefer. So if you're out there and you're a teacher, a reminder that really good teachers who nurture and who love can make a big difference. And Pearl Schaefer made a huge difference in the life of Dallin A. Jokes. Being reunited with those he loves the most is what gave Dallin A. Jokes the strength and the power and the stability. That family stability helped him so much. And it made all the difference in the world. His life started to change at that point for the better. And I also love how Stella becomes such a powerful force for good. In fact, in an interview years ago, asking and the interviewer asked President Oaks about his mom in more depth. And he shared this, that he remembered that his mother would review in her prayers their commitments and covenants, almost reminding the Lord that we had paid our tithes and offerings, that the desired blessings was, as nearly as we could judge, a righteous desire, that we were serving in our various callings to the best of our ability, and that we were now laying hold of the Lord's promises. And then President Oak said, I can't communicate the sincerity and the fervor of those pleas, or the sincerity of the way that she lived. She said once that she always paid her tithes and offerings because then the Lord would make things happen that she couldn't, and he always did. And then... Because my mother had no doubts about the Lord's reality and his ability to answer her prayers, I haven't either, President Oak said. And then he paused in this interview and said, this is a very personal thing to talk about, and I don't very often, because it's hard to do without sounding overconfident. But I would be scared to death to try and undertake something without asking for the Lord's help. So I always pray for that help, and I've never failed to get it. He said, personal revelation is part of my faith and part of my approach to life. All of my adult life, I've had responsibilities for which I've needed a lot of extra help. But when I've had the assurance of the Lord's help, I've never been afraid to go ahead. Now, once again, this is great because not only is it a wonderful revelation and you know some great comprehension and understanding of how the Lord works, but a reminder that if we pray, with faith and the belief that we've done all that we can do. And to know that the Lord will bless us and step in and intervene is an incredible, wonderful source of strength, I think, in many of our lives. So life lesson three. What are some key lessons we've learned as we've observed our parents, a mother, a father? What have we learned just by watching them? And what are several valuable lessons that your parents have taught you that you'd like to carry on to the next generation. I think that's a great thing to think about. Now let's develop the next idea. President Oaks begins working at the age of 11. At the age of 11, he begins, he secured a job sweeping out a radio repair shop and testing the tubes to find out which ones were good and which ones weren't so good. Before he was 16, He had obtained a first-class radio telephone license, which allowed him to operate a commercial radio station's transmitter, and he finds a job in radio. Now, everyone, President Oaks, as a 16-year-old, gets on a bus, and 
takes that bus to Denver, where he sits in a room, probably with a lot of adults, and takes that test and comes home and literally is now certified to run a radio station, which he starts to do. So as we talk about another life lesson here, let's talk about the life lesson of work. In fact, in his biography, written by Richard Turley, there's a great section that talks about when President Oaks was 14 years old and did go back to his grandfather's farm and Payson to work. And here are some of the things he did that summer. He milked cows, he hauled wheat and hay, hauled manure and trash, hoed and cultivated the garden, he built fences, he tended animals, repaired the roof on some of the sheds and outbuildings, irrigated, built some calf pens and sheds, drove cattle to a nearby community on horseback, worked on ditches, cut thistle, hauled limbs in the orchard, and then he actually sanded and painted the family Ford. Now, that was just one summer, but there you go. In terms of making the making of future apostles, wow. That work ethic that President Oaks uh, was taught by his own family has served him so well throughout his life. What a blessing he's been to the church because of that work ethic. What may not be clear is Dallin's ninth and 10th grade years were still in Vernal, Utah. And then for 11th and 12th grade, the family moves to Provo. He secured a job at a radio station in Vernal and worked there during 9th and 10th grade. KJAM, 1340 on the dial. And then when he when they moved to Provo, Dallin wastes no time. He goes immediately out as soon as they unload their moving truck. And he's able to secure a job at KCSU. Uh, here in Provo, and uh, that becomes a wonderful experience for him. He actually ends up working there for six years, not only you know for his two years of high school, but all four years at BYU. And he's basically running the radio station. He's the the station's chief engineer, and he is responsible for making almost everything happen. Now, a couple other things about his uh, work ethic, just to just to focus on this high school period for a minute. He was balancing school and work, and he was working a lot. He said, I, wor- I went to work at 3 p.m. on Saturday, worked until it closed. I closed the station at midnight, slept on a cot in that small building that housed the transmitter and studios, and then worked another eight-hour shift beginning at 7 a.m. on Sunday. He eventually is one of the announcers at the radio station, and then he even transforms into announcing high school athletic events like basketball. During his junior year, school sports, particularly basketball, occupied much of his time, and despite his hard work on the court, he felt that he was the worst player on the team. The coaches, in fact, eventually moved him to the JV squad, where he found great satisfaction in competition. He was always the highest scorer on the team, and so he loved he loved that opportunity. But his senior year becomes very busy. I'll just read this to you. It's 1949 to 1950. Along with increased responsibility at the radio station, sports, music, and drama occupied much of his time. Dallin said, I played almost every minute of every football game on offense and defense. I played my oboe in the band. I had the lead role in the children's theater Chinese production, The Land of the Dragon. He also found success on the track team, both in discus and shot put. And seeing that he would not make the basketball team at the varsity level, He opted for broadcasting games in his radio role. I called the play-by-play for the state tournament, he remembered, and other stations picked up the feed, paying Dallin $5 a game. Finally, in the days just before graduation, when warm weather and boredom prevailed over common sense, I was instrumental in planning and executing some sensational pranks. Well, we love that as well, just knowing that about Elder Oak. So what about us? What about our children? What are the lessons that we've learned from learning to work hard, to be busy, and to be, to be engaged in meaningful activities and worthwhile endeavors. Well, some of you are very aware of what happens next because President Oaks is going to graduate from high school in June of 1950. And almost simultaneously, the Korean War breaks out. And uh, that long-awaited mission that Dallin Ake Jokes hope to serve was not going to was not going to happen. 
In fact, he wrote this way. He wrote it this way. He said, when I was a young man, I thought I would serve a mission. I graduated from high school in June of 1950 and thousands of miles away. One week after that high school graduation, a North Korean army crossed the 38th parallel and our country was at war. I was 17 years old, but as a member of the Utah National Guard, I was soon under orders to prepare for mobilization and active service. And suddenly for me and for many other young men of my generation, the full-time mission that we had planned or assumed was not to be. So it was while President Oaks was working at the radio station, was waiting to be called up. He was waiting for his unit to be called up any day and told that that would happen. Well, President Dallin H. Oaks is not one to sit around and wait. And so what happened was, is he decided, well, while I'm waiting to be called up, I'm going to go to school. So President Oaks starts to take classes at Brigham Young University. He majors in accounting. And every semester as he's taking classes, he's just waiting to be called up at any second. And it just never happens. He was never called up. His unit was never activated. And so eventually he meets June Dixon. And June is a member of the Spanish Fork drill team. And Dallin was announcing a high school basketball game on the radio. And that's how they met. That's how they came in contact with each other for the first time. And they, de and they develop a wonderful, strong relationship. In fact, on one occasion, President Oaks wrote, June brought out the best in me. What a great lesson for anyone who's looking for someone to marry. Do they bring out the best in you? He also said she has kept me from getting pompous and self-important. Or how about this insight? A disagreement with June wipes me out. And since I know I can't work until I get it resolved, and since I'm usually wrong anyway, I just apologize as soon as I can. Our children can't claim that they've never heard us disagree. June and I have had some marvelous disagreements, but we always work them out. Don't you love that transparency? Don't you love that Elder Oaks has no trouble telling us, yeah, we've had some disagreements, no, problem, no question about that, but we've been able to work them out. That's real to me. That's authentic all the way. On another occasion, Sister Oaks said of President Oaks, he's like his mother and that he never, never criticizes anyone. I've never heard him say anything unkind about anyone, and we've been married for almost 30 years. Now, friends, I find that amazing. When you think of Dallin H. Oaks, President Dallin H. Oaks, the man in the church who is probably criticized more than anyone else, at least in our era, in our modern era, I mean, on Twitter, on social media, whatever the platform is, President Oaks has been just abused in some cases on those, on, in those outlets and then yet to think in an ironic way that yet he never ever would say anything bad about anyone, I find to be kind of a really impressive thing to me. Now, because President Oaks didn't have a dad, June's father became a great guiding star in his life. And it was June's father that made the recommendation as Dallin was starting to wind down toward the end of his academic career at BYU that have you ever thought of going to law school? And I don't think President Oaks had thought of it that before. But that became an area that he be, he was really interested in pursuing a career in law. He did say that his early college studies were erratic. I didn't perform at a consistently high level until June came into my life. He said, I owe so much to her. She said of him, he's the most outstanding man that I know. At 18, he was outstanding. He's immensely gifted and he's prepared himself. I don't think anything he accomplishes ever ever surprises me. Now I love this this great mutual feeling that June Oaks and Alan Oaks had for each other. He has often quoted his motto of work first and play later, but his family jokes that no, no, it's work first, play never. In fact, when Dallin was in law school, he would be gone every day from 7 in the morning till 11 at night, except on Sundays. And June Oaks recalls hearing him say, look, there are a lot of guys over there at the law school who are smarter than I, but none will work harder. I have used those words 
by President Dallin H. Oaks and my own family, as we've taught our children the same principles, that no one should ever be able to outwork you, that on your mission, in school, in your own professions, whatever you're doing, that no one should be able to outwork you. They may be more handsome, they may be more beautiful, they may come from prominent families, they may be wealthy, they may have a 4.0 GPA, but your own work ethic is something that you have control of. And anyway, I love that from President Oaks. What a great what a great lesson for all of us, his work ethic. Now for just a little bit of humor as we consider the Oaks family and their experiences at law school at the University of Chicago. Here's President Oaks sharing this story with the BYU student body. Arriving at law school in Chicago with two little babies, we moved into a $55 a month apartment in a converted army barracks and proceeded to live a very meager but happy existence during the three years that followed. My scholarship paid my tuition, but all other living expenses were paid from my small earnings as an officer in an artillery battery in an Illinois National Guard, and from some borrowed funds. And like some of you, our parents had the means and the willingness to help us more than they did, but we wanted to make it our own way. We rarely ate any kind of meat except liver and hot dogs. That sounds awesome, doesn't it, everyone? which we had no more than several times a week. But on special occasions, we did get some of the less expensive cuts of chicken or hamburger. Our three-room apartment was heated by an oil-fired space heater whose small attached tank had to be filled manually several times each day from storage rooms out on the street. When our two daughters were ages two and three, the old one dipped her little cup down into the oil tank on the back of the heater and took a large drink of the clear fuel oil and then shared in generously with her young sister. Bad results followed, and June had to rush them to the local hospital to have their stomachs pumped. Several weeks later, the little girls climbed up into our medicine cabinet and seized a bottle of candy-flavored cough syrup that included some sedative drug. Cooperatively alter alternating their draws on the bottle, the two finished its contents with predictable results. June grabbed one child under each arm and rushed for the hospital again. After their stomachs had been pumped, the nurse told June that would be $10 each. The total of $20 would be a terrible drain on our funds, and June argued with the nurse, pointing out that the last time she brought the girls in to have their stomachs pumped, she had been charged only $5 each. The nurse made an appropriate record of, the, of that fact, and within a week, we were visited by a Chicago public health nurse who made some very pointed inquiries about the storage of our harmful substances and our fitness as parents. In the meantime, one of my playful law school classmates was heard to tell a group that Dallin and June Oaks wouldn't drink anything, but their daughters would drink everything. I just think that's pretty awesome. Here's another cool insight, I think, to President Oaks's life. While he was that student at Chicago, he said, my favorite play activity was with the little girls was Daddy Be a Bear. When I came home from my studies for a few minutes at lunch and dinner time, I would set my books on the table and drop down on all fours on the linoleum. Then making the most terrible growls, I would crawl around the floor after the children who fled with screams, but always begged for more. Daddy Be a Bear was our favorite game. Now, this story gets a little bit better. President Oaks continued that while I was in my third year of law school, a prominent Milwaukee law firm invited June and me to come up at their expense to interview for a job. As part of the process, they had me interviewed by a psychologist, an unusual practice with law firms, but standard with that one. As part of his examination, this professional asked me to tell to tell him what I saw in some weird ink blots I had never seen before, but which now came known as the Rorschach test. In the first set of ink blots, I saw nothing but two bears on their hind legs fighting. I couldn't see anything in the second one. The third was clearly a mother bear in the woods followed by a cub, and so I advised the interviewer. After two more blots that meant nothing to me, I saw another familiar subject, a bear peering around a large bush. When I described that to the psychologist, he looked at me intently, put down his pencil, and said, Now, Mr. Oaks, suppose you tell me about your thing about bears. So I told him about Daddy Be a Bear. He just shook his head, made some notations on his paper, and sent me back to the law firm. 
I must have passed the test because the firm raised the proposed starting salary by $1,000 per year when they received his this report. I just think it's so wonderful and so awesome to visualize Dallin Oaks crawling on all fours in his home, playing with his daughter, his young daughters. And I think, I hope we can see all of our apostles in that light as, as men who are ordinary in many senses, who are family men, who love their, their wives and their children, and who actually get down on their knees and play with them. I love that. Just like Joseph Smith would have done. In 1970, Dallin H. Oaks was named Executive Director of the American Bar Foundation. He was also a member of the Advisory Committee of the National Institute of Law Enforcement and Criminal Justice and of the American Bar Association Committee to Survey Legal Needs. He also was a prolific publisher and author uh, as a law student, but then he becomes a law professor eventually. In fact, President Oaks uh, has a really interesting career that we ought to identify right now. Like President Irene, the trajectory of both of these men in their professional lives was one where they actually made less money with every job they, they took. And for President Oaks, he started off in a private law firm making some good money. But then his next job was with the University of Chicago Law School, where he made even less as a professor. And then to BYU, where he made even less as the president of BYU. And then to the Utah Supreme Court, where he made even less than that. And so for those of you that are struggling with your jobs right now, just take heart and think of President Oaks and his career. Another story that I read in one of the devotional talks that President Oaks gave while he was the president of BYU... And it's worth repeating because it's a great lesson for all of us. But President Oaks, in his first years in that law firm, right out of law school, he was working many, many hours. In fact, there were many nights he was getting home late. And then he was called in by the stake president and presented with the idea that he would be called to be a stake missionary for his stake. And President Oaks did not know how he could accept that calling, not not in the demands where they wanted, you know, 10 hours or more a week of proselyting. And President Oaks was working at the law firm late every night and just did not know how he could do it. But he exercised the faith, felt that the call had come from the Lord. And so he did accept that church calling at that time. And he found that by giving some of his nights to the Lord, that he actually became more prosperous and more successful in his practice, working less hours and making more money. And I think that prepared him well to be called into the Chicago Stake Presidency not long after that. So he practiced corporate law for three years in Chicago at the firm of Kirkland and Ellis. And then in 1961, he becomes an associate professor of law at the University of Chicago, and then later serves as associate dean and then acting dean of the law school. He did help write the Bill of Rights for the state of Illinois for their constitutional convention very active. In fact, before all of that, he begins his career, really, clerking for U.S. Justice Earl Warren, maybe one of the most prolific Supreme Court justices of our of our day. And uh, what a great experience that must have been. And so, what a surprise it was that on May the 4th, 1971, 38-year-old Dallin H. Oaks becomes the president of BYU. That's just incredible to think about at that young age. Now, I'm not sure how many people in the church thought that President Oaks would be the president of BYU. Uh, however, his stake president, John Sonnenberg in Chicago, had premonitions that that was going to happen, so he wasn't surprised. And when President Oaks arrives on the campus of BYU, his first message is, Hello, BYU. And just so you know, that style that President Dallin H. Oaks has, where he speaks in church and it's very formal and every word is pronounced perfectly, that's not really how he lives his life or who he is. And I think many of you would be surprised what kind of president Dallin H. Oaks was at BYU. He was very involved with the students. He was running races against them. He was involved in many outdoor activities. He was in the locker room during BYU games. And of course, that spirit of revelation that 
permeated his life, that was taught to him by his mother, was something that he tapped into quite often. In fact, he wrote this. As a new and inexperienced president at BYU, I had many problems to analyze and many decisions to reach. I was very dependent on the Lord, and one day in October, I drove up Provo Canyon to ponder a particular problem. And although alone and without any interruption, I found myself unable to think about the problem at hand. Another pending issue I was not ready to consider kept thrusting itself into my mind. Should we modify BYU's academic calendar to complete the fall semester before Christmas? And so let's interject here just for a second, but could you imagine, yes, back in the old days, as a BYU student, you would go home for the Christmas holidays, come back, take your final exams, and then a week or so after that, the winter semester would start. I know many of you would, many of us would not be in favor of that at all. After 10 or 15 minutes of unsuccessful efforts to exclude thoughts on this subject, I finally realized what was happening. The issue of the calendar did not seem timely to me, and I was certainly not seeking any guidance on it, but the Spirit was trying to communicate with me on that subject. I immediately turned my full attention to that question and began to record my thoughts on a piece of paper, and within a few minutes I had recorded the details of a three-semester calendar with all of its powerful advantages. And many of you know, now BYU actually runs a four-semester calendar. And so I wrote life, another life lesson here. What can we learn about, about prayer? And about pr- how prayers are answered. But also we've learned from President Nelson and President Oaks of how they relied on prayer in their professional lives. And then I wrote this. Have we ever received, had a similar experience where we were praying for one thing and received an answer to something else. And I've had that happen many times in my life, especially in the ecclesiastical type of positions where we're praying over a name for someone to serve in some capacity and another problem is revealed and solved while we're hoping to solve (laughs) something entirely differently. You know, we did mention that there was great humor uh, in the in the life of President Oaks, and he was such a great president who really was interactive with the students. He would eat lunch every day at the Cannon Center, or at least multiple times a week, and make friends with the students and talk to them. And on one occasion, he's in the Cannon Center, he's talking to a group of students, and one of them says, hey, who are you anyway? And Do you work here or something? And President Oaks says, well, no, yeah, I, I, I'm the president. And the young man said, president of what? And President Oaks had to say, President of BYU, I'm your president. Anyway, a very interesting conversation as that young man tried to backpedal and claim that he knew that all along. Years ago, I talked to um, a friend of mine, a relative, who was the head of one of the departments on the BYU campus. I asked him who his favorite BYU president was that he worked with. Without any hesitation in his voice, he said, Dallin A. Jokes. And I said, how come? Why, why Dallin A. jokes? And he said, you know, President Oaks was so laid back. He would walk into my office, put his feet up on my desk, put his hands behind his head, and say, hey, what do you want to talk about today? Or what's on your mind? Or what do you think about this? And he was so casual. And once again, I know that the way that he speaks about things comes across in a way that would make us think that he's so professional and almost a, per- a perfectionist when in reality, he's very chill. He's very laid back. And I've heard many people who know him personally tell me that that's exactly the case. In fact, I had a stake president years ago that I was teaching this class at Education Week on the life of our apostles. And a man came up and said he had been a stake president somewhere in the United States. I'll just keep that anonymous. And that when he went to pick up President Oaks at the airport, President Oaks had on khaki pants and sandals and a Hawaiian shirt, and the, the stake president was quite surprised. He, he was all dressed up in his suit, and President Oaks just let him know that, you know what, when I travel, I just, I just like to be comfortable. Now, I don't know if that was a one-time thing or if that was a regular deal. I don't know that program. You know, on one occasion, Cosmo the Cougar is out on the floor at the Marriott Center going crazy, going berserk, dancing and everything, pulls off the hat, pulls off the headpiece, and it's Dallin A. Jokes. Um... And after that experience, a student editor of the Daily Universe wrote this, Dallin Oaks, President Dallin Oaks is a man of great dignity, but even with his dignity, he avoids the stuffed shirt image. 
He has not only earned our respect, but I believe he has proved himself to be one of us. In a speech that President Oaks gave to the BYU community, he said, You belong to a community of workers and doers, not a community of dreamers and aesthetics, piously and passively waiting for the millennium. I think that just sums up President Oaks so well. And speaking of this idea of belonging to a community of workers and doers, I think you'll really like this story. Dallin H. Oaks practiced what he preached, being a good Samaritan and taking time to serve others, even as the busiest man on the BYU campus. When a visiting Pennsylvania couple were knocked unconscious in a traffic accident near his university home, President Oaks called an ambulance and went to the aid of the injured. And when the ambulance driver showed up alone, the president drove the ambulance so that the driver could attend to the wounded en route to the hospital. I mean, what kind of university president's driving the ambulance to the hospital, right? While President Oak served as the president of BYU, his words spoke loud and his actions even louder. This is what Richard Turley writes in the biography. No wonder the student body presented him with its exemplary manhood award given annually to a man who has achieved success through his own courage and application and whose life is considered a pattern for the men of BYU to emulate. Dallin H. Oaks was that kind of exemplary man that was worth emulating. No question about it. Now here comes another life lesson. And the lesson is, or at least the question is, what do we want to be remembered for? Here's President Oaks. During my first five years as president of BYU, I was one of about five leaders who had a weekly coordination meeting with Elder Neil A. Maxwell, who then was the church commissioner of education. One day, he began our meeting by asking, what would you like to be remembered for after your release from your present positions? He asked each of us to write our answers on a piece of paper and considered it privately. Pondering this inspiration, this inspired question, taught me an important lesson. I applied it not only to my employment, but also to my position as a father. And I asked myself, when your children are grown up and leave home, or when you die, would you want them to remember about you as a father? This question caused me to see that I was in danger of being remembered for always being critical and nagging about trivial behaviors that irritated me, such as the practice of a teenage daughter who continually scattered her clothes and other possessions all around the house. I wanted to be remembered for fatherly communications of praise and love, and other matters of eternal importance. And so for each of us, what do we hope to be remembered for? Not just in church callings, but maybe more importantly, in our families, as parents, as fathers, as mothers, as spouses, as grandparents. What are some of our poor qualities that we hope people aren't noticing that much? And at some point down the road, when we reach our 70s, our 80s, or our 90s, What do we hope that the closest people to us will say at our funeral? Sobering to think about, isn't it? I love the tributes that President Oaks' children have given him. In fact, his daughter Sharman said that if I think of one word that epitomizes my father, it's integrity. She said, I've always known that my dad would never do anything that wasn't above reproach. In fact, she remembers once she was chided by her dad for trying to remove an uncanceled stamp from an envelope which came in the mail so that she could use that stamp again. And that's just a lesson that Sharman always remembered. The BYU years were a little less busy than the Chicago years. This is Lloyd, their son Lloyd. And Dad was home a lot more. About every Saturday, we'd pick up some night crawlers in Springville, head up the canyon to fish in the Spanish Fork River. After a while, Lloyd would tire of fishing, and collect or throw rocks, but his father would keep at it. And then June, his wife, said of him and fishing that if Dallin fishes, he fishes with the same intensity that that he has when he goes after case books. Uh, pretty funny. President Oaks was called to be an apostle in the April conference of 1984. Lloyd, his son, was not surprised by his dad's call as a general authority. He said all through his life, he's been very close to the Spirit. Then Lloyd shared this experience that he had asked to borrow the family car to attend a party that night. He was getting ready to back out of the driveway when his father came out and asked him not to go. Don't go to that party, explaining he just felt an impression he shouldn't do that. 
They learned later that another car had rolled off the road Lloyd would have been on at that exact time, and they felt the impression certainly was from the spirit and a warning for sure. Charmin also speaks of her father's closeness to the spirit. She recalls coming in late at night during her high school years, going in her parents' room to say goodnight and finding her dad, President Oaks, on his knees in prayer. Both of her parents were examples in many ways. One thing we appreciated was that our father and mother loved each other. Just walking into the kitchen and catching my father kissing my mother, it's one of my favorite memories. Oh, I love that about President Oaks and his love for his, for his family. So now let's talk about, just for a few minutes, the closing years at BYU. President Oaks serves from 1971 to 1980. He was the one who initiated that release. He did not want to be another Ernest L. Wilkinson and a president of BYU for you know 20 or 30 or 40 years. 10 years was good. And President Oaks felt himself wearing down he was a hard, hard worker, and the, the schedule was grueling, and he just felt like he was missing out on his children's lives. He was missing out on some family time, but he just felt worn out, and it was now time for someone else to take, to take over. Meanwhile, and this is what I always think of with all of our apostles and prophets, but there were job opportunities. There were many job opportunities that were coming in the direction of President Oaks. There are many job possibilities for President Oaks after he finished BYU. The Utah Supreme Court was certainly one of those opportunities, but there were other opportunities at the national level. In fact, the new Deputy U.S. Attorney General phoned Elder Oaks to offer him a job as Associate U.S. Attorney General over civil aspects of the Justice Department. There was also talk of having him become a Solicitor General to work in that department. PBS, the public broadcasting system, really wanted President Oaks, and he went through some meetings with them, what we would call hiring meetings. Bottom line is that he ends up being turned down because of his membership in the church, which I think was quite devastating because he was really very prepared for that. He was also on the short list of several U.S. presidents, Carter, Ford, Reagan, to be a Supreme Court justice which, as we know, a huge deal. But when it came down to it, the decision was really made in the Provo Temple on September the 26th, 1980. Elder Oaks wrote in his journal that this morning, Jude and I went to the temple to seek inspiration on our decision. During the entire session, I could not get my mind off the Utah Supreme Court. Try as I might. And he said, and I did try that because it was probably the lowest paying opportunity. But in all of this consciousness of the prospect that I might do this, I did not have one negative thought or apprehension, nor have I had any in my deliberations up to this point. This is a persuasive confirmation in and of itself, he said. And then as we sat on the sofa in the last room, we can call that the celestial room, Jude and I prayed quietly by ourselves, and as I finished this thought, flooded my mind. And it was repeated over and over. Go to the court, and I will call you from there. The immediate significance of the words, go to the court, and I will call you from there, confirm my decision to apply for the Utah Supreme Court vacancy. But it wasn't until I was called to the Quorum of the Twelve in April of 84 while serving on the court that I realized the significance of the last seven words. In fact, it wasn't until I reread my journal as I was writing this book. This book is called Life's Lessons Learned, by the way. But I was reminded of that portion of the pers- of personal revelation. I had recorded it faithfully, but without understanding its long-term significance. And President Oaks loved serving on the Utah Supreme Court. And in his mind, he was going to be there for 20 years. That's what he was hoping for. He was 48 years old. He wanted to serve until he was 68 or 69. He wrote, I was pleased to get back into the mainstream of the legal profession, and I loved the job. I couldn't imagine anything I'd enjoy more than what I was doing on the Utah Supreme Court. Well, we know that life doesn't always go the way that we plan for it to go. In fact, for most of us, I think we would say, yep, that was really different. That is not what I was thinking. I did not think it was going to go that way. That's for sure. Um, and like I said, he did hope that he would, uh, at the age of 48, that he would serve 
for 20 years. A couple of things happened that President Oaks was not expecting. First, four years later, so he didn't quite make the 20 years. Four years later, in 1984, he's called to be a member of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And then, a few years after that, maybe quite a few, because the year was 1998, as I remember, President Oaks, his wife, June, passed away of cancer, with cancer, and he was not expecting that either. And so the question is, is, okay, what do we do, the life lesson, what do we do when life doesn't go our way? What do we do when life doesn't go the way that we plan it out? What can you learn from some of our own, your own life unexpected turns? And how do we learn great lessons from the way President Oaks handled these significant changes in his life? Now let's delve, dive in a little bit deeper to June's death. In Life's Lessons Learned, President Oaks talked about the healing process and how he made it through that journey of grief. And I think it's a great lesson for everyone who's going through that. He called it a three-legged stool. And he said, first was his absolute faith in the reality of the resurrection. Whenever an apostle talks about the reality of the resurrection, I always pay close attention because there's some things that President Oaks knows about the resurrection that I would think most of us don't know. He said, second was my memory that although I had not been the perfect husband I wished I had, I had been, and of course I always wish I could have been a little bit better, but he said I had never betrayed June's trust or violated our marriage covenants. Or in other words, I wasn't the perfect husband, but I tried my best. and We had a wonderful relationship. And then he said, third was my memory of caring for her personally during her last illness and doing all that she requested that was in my power. Or in other words, we did everything that we did for her treatment, and it just wasn't to be. And I heard President Oaks add one more leg to that stool. So maybe it's a four-legged stool now, but he said during that summer, June died on July the 21st. So after that, from the rest of July and through August, President Oaks wrote the biography of his wife, June. And I think he cried every day. And he said, by the time I was done, he was practically dehydrated, right? But he had just cried himself out. And he felt like he was kind of ready at that point to, to move on. Now, he doesn't move on immediately, but not too long after that, President Oaks meets Kristen McMain. And uh, he and Kristen are married later, uh, a year or so after uh, June's passing, and of course have this wonderful, awesome relationship today. Let me share just a few little interesting tidbits about President Oaks as we come to a conclusion of, of his life. one of his family members said he's always reading. He reads three or four newspapers a day from Washington, Salt Lake City, Provo, regularly along with church magazines, an assortment of legal journals, a wide variety of other books or periodicals. And there's a pattern to his reading. He tackles technical things in the morning. When he is fresher, he saves lighter things for later. But reading is always close at hand. In fact, if he thinks he's going to be waiting at a stoplight, he might pick up something to read. I love how well-read our apostles are. I feel like that's another common characteristic is how much they know and how much they read um, and how knowledgeable they are about events in the world. They're very tuned into those things. Time is a stewardship, President Oak said once, and my goal is simply not to waste time. This involves using a phone rather than calling a meeting. And if a meeting is necessary, let's make it a short one. And he carries things to read with him when he goes to those meetings. Since warm water stimulates my mind, he said, he likes to think about projects in the tub. Driving is another place for thinking and dictating notes. Watching TV, if he does watch TV, and I'm sure he doesn't have a lot of time for that, but if he does, he said that's also a time to really read. All right, and then we'll finish with this today. Gracious yet candid, not extroverted, but enthusiastic. One person recalled that Elder Oaks had been hosting a group of visitors when during a lull in the conversation, uh, other kinds of educational experiences were brought up. And in response to a comment, President Oaks said that he had never received any training for developing a positive mental attitude. And one of the visitors in this meeting said, for heaven's sakes, don't. 
If you had any more positive mental attitude, you'd be unbearable. But I love the idea that our prophets and apostles are hopeful, that they're optimistic. I am so grateful for Dallin H. Oaks and for his wonderful life. He's had a life of trial. He's had a life of challenge. But those obstacles have molded him and shaped him into the disciple of Jesus Christ that he is today. And I share that with you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.